0: And she would play You could hear her on the boardwalk every day suds all around Little bubbles on the ground Rub-a-dub-a-dub in her little tub All those tunes she found the Little thimbles on her fingers made the noise She played Charleston on the laundry for the boys She could rag her me. Right through the knees of a brand new suit of easy it's Coney Island was
1: born around the Wonder Wheel is the 47th film written and directed by Woody Allen. The film stars Kate Winslet as Ginny, a former small-time actress who has ended up a waitress at a faded Coney Island of the 50s. An affair with the local lifeguard Mickey can't make her happy either, especially when her husband's estranged daughter, Carolina, turns up. This is a tight, taut claustrophobic drama about flawed people. It unfolds like a play anchored by an incredible performance by Kate Winslet, who sits in a beautiful backdrop of recreated Coney Island from another time. Welcome to the Woody Allen Pages podcast. This week we look at 2017's Wonder Wheel. How it was conceived, how it was made, and how it's really, really bleak. Spoilers are everywhere, so watch the film and then come back.
0: Let me get to the story, in which I am a character, so be warned as a poet, I use symbols, and as a budding dramatist, I relish melodrama and larger than
1: life characters. In Annie Hall, Alan memorably placed a house under the roller coaster in Coney Island as the childhood home of Alvy Singer. For many years, people would ask Alan if that was how he really grew up. Well, the truth of it was not that far from the fiction. Alan grew up just a few streets away from Coney Island and it was always in the near distance. In the 50s, the time when Wonder Wheel was set, Alan was a preteen growing up nearby and Coney Island was in decline. Before that, in the early decades of the 20th century, Coney Island was at its peak. It was actually several amusement parks who together made the largest amusement area in the United States. It wasn't just big either, it was innovative. It was always the first with the latest technology and amusements. The song used in the credits of Wonder Wheel, Coney Island Washboard, was written in 1926. That was the peak in popular culture for Coney Island, the most famous place of fun in the USA. But World War II meant that technology and construction resources were diverted to the war. People tightened their belts, and the amusement parks were losing money, and they were ultimately sold off to new people who didn't care for them. There was a huge fire in 1944 one of those fires with unknown causes but someone already had new housing development plans already in place coney island would never be that big again so people looked away from coney island but coney island was still there alan would remember this fascinating relic from his childhood years it was emptier and catered to poorer families who couldn't afford to go abroad Most people had moved to new things called suburbs and watched new things called televisions. There were still some visitors though, but it was seedier and unwholesome. Soldiers would frequent the boardwalk doing what soldiers do. In fact, the initial name for this film was Coney Island Whitefish, slang for a used condom found on the beach. Coney Island, 1950s.
0: The beach, the boardwalk, Once
1: a luminous jewel, but growing relentlessly seedier as the tides roll in and out. Even in Annie Hall, Alan was fascinated by the people who lived there and who worked there with their families. The kids grew up with the noise and the lights of the amusement parks all around them, non-stop. For decades, he saw it as a venue for drama. He just needed the story. The noise, the seediness and the working class people trying to get by on Coney Island must have reminded Alan of some of the writers he loved like Tennessee Williams, who set A Streetcar Named Desire in the heat of New Orleans' French Quarter, or Eugene O'Neill's downtrodden Greenwich Village in The Iceman Cometh. Allen has tapped into the works of American playwrights like Williams and O'Neill before. In fact, he constantly goes back to that well, from 1987 September to Blue Jasmine in 2013, which was still in recent memory when this film came out. Allen has always wanted to make his name in drama. And for some reason, his idea of drama is very inspired by mid-century Americans. There's a lot of great works that came out of Eugene O'Neill and his cohorts. You could say a lot about them, but you couldn't say that they were funny. Their greatest works were tragedies, and they were utterly bleak. Taking that approach here, Alan creates, maybe, his bleakest film. It's obviously a book. Open it. The
0: plays of Eugene O'Neill. You'll like them.
1: They're dark, and he really knew the score and all human nature and existence.
2: I, I once acted... In- After
1: almost 50 films and spending decades trying to live down the reputation of being just a comic writer, Alan hits us with pure, undiluted tragedy. At the heart of the story is Ginny. It is her tragedy that we see play out. I don't think we are supposed to like Ginny, but I do pity her. Her life is hard. She has a low-paying job, an unhappy marriage, and a son who is lighting fires. Some of that is not her fault, but some of it is. As we learn during the course of the film, her infidelity and little lies have led her to this place. I like that Alan makes her troubles, individually, quite small. Like her husband Humpty being a drunk is frustrating, but not the worst. Living with noise outside your window all the time is awful, but not a disaster. Even her son Richie is essentially just a bit weird and getting help. The effect is that this home feels like it's always set to explode. People raise their voices all the time. There's a sense that Ginny is just holding it together. And that's where the film starts. Alan soon ramps up the tension, and the film is all about how Ginny deals with what comes her way.
2: I guess you're used to all this noise. You never get used to it. I hate it. This whole honky-tonk fairyland. We live up
1: here. There are really two inciting incidents for Ginny, and they are two people, Carolina and Mickey. Carolina, the daughter of her new husband Humpty, appears first. Like a lot of characters in this film, she is a bit of an archetype. She is beautiful and vulnerable, as played by Juno Temple. Add to that vulnerability that she is on the run from killers, homeless, and broke. Is not as played up, but she is also her own worst enemy. She falls with the wrong man and then makes some bad choices on top. Now she appears in Ginny's life, who has to help carry the consequences of this woman's mistakes as well. I
2: ran away and I I took nothing. I, I have no clothes. I've been sleeping in the rain and I'm marked. They're gonna kill me. Well, that's what you get when you marry a gangster. Jesus, they're not gonna come after you here, are they? I don't like trouble. Do you hear what I'm saying? They're gonna kill me. There's a young kid here. This is not our problem. All
1: right, all right, all right, knock it off. Carolina doesn't plan to steal any of the attention away from Ginny, but she does it naturally. Alan makes it hard for Humpty to turn away from his daughter in need. It also doesn't help that Ginny has long given up on giving Humpty the companionship that he needs. She doesn't go out with him and treats him coldly. And of course, Humpty's energies go to the person who loves him and needs him. Jesus, Humpty, you sound so happy. Like, what happened, your number come in? Better than my number came in. My ship came home. Carolina takes her husband's attention. She also takes a job in the same place as Ginny and literally wears the same clothes. Later, when Ginny needs money, Hupti is saving it for Carolina. She's also going to school to try and not be a waitress, which is Ginny's dream. Carolina has taken Ginny's husband, money and future. And then she goes one further when she becomes a rival for Ginny when it comes to Mickey.
2: Jesus Christ, I can't believe Carolina's going to wind up a waitress. Thank God Shirley's in her grave. What about me
1: winding up a waitress? It's not what I have in mind either. Hey! Mickey is a lifeguard, but he's an amateur writer. Ginny has met him by chance and they begin an affair. He is also our narrator, and we see the story through his eyes. That our main character Ginny is not our narrator is not conventional, but there is plenty of precedent. Like in the celebrated Tennessee Williams play, The Glass Menagerie, the narrator is part of the action, yet stands apart from it. So too does Mickey, who is the first voice we hear, but doesn't really enter the story until about 20 minutes in. But Mickey is a bit of a schlub. He's not some glamorous leading man who we feel will sweep in and change lives. Yes, he's handsome pop star Justin Timberlake, but Alan doesn't frame him as a classic leading man. We first judge him because of Ginny. They meet when Ginny is walking along the beach contemplating suicide. Mickey kind of saves her, but he gives her some attention and listens to her story. They begin an affair, but it's not a beautiful romance. It's rough and desperate sex on the beach. There's no glamour here. I wonder if Mickey is supposed to be one of those handsome but unreliable leading men. A role someone like Tony Curtis or Kirk Douglas might have played in the past. Because Mickey has some natural charisma but he's still a bit of a loser. He's another nobody here in Coney Island. He also takes no responsibility for his role in the story when his attentions turn to Carolina. He knows that Ginny will get hurt. He promised to Ginny he's not interested, but of course, he is. There's a lovely moment when Mickey picks up Carolina in the rain, and he asks her to go to coffee, but she wants to go to work. Just a throwaway line, but it shows that Mickey is already wanting Carolina's time.
0: Carolina! Huh? Come on, get in! Oh! Thank you! God, I was
1: getting soaked! Let me buy you a cup of coffee? Oh, I can, I'll be late for work. I'll get you as close to the boardwalk as I can. Okay. Ginny reacts badly. Things go wrong in Ginny's life, and she has this tragic ability to make it worse. It starts small. Ginny tries to push Mickey away from Carolina by telling him about how she is wanted by the mob, It only serves to make Mickey more interested. Ginny then ruins a date with Mickey by complaining about Carolina driving a distance between them. Sure, Mickey was already pulling away. But with Mickey, you get the sense that if it wasn't Carolina, it would be someone else. But then Alan subverts the blame on Mickey with the scenes with the watch. By the second half of the film, there are a few moments of oh god, oh god. We see this train crash about to happen. And for me, one of the key ones is the watch. We know that Ginny needs money. It comes up in a standalone scene. Ginny asks Humpty for money and that there is money hidden away in the house, set aside for Carolina's dreams. And by then, Ginny has already turned on Mickey. She's suspicious, jealous and resentful. Nothing's happened to be jealous of.
0: I was hoping we might have a future together. Yes, I know. I told you we'd talk about it when the time comes. If you told her
2: she had a beautiful face, what the hell is she she supposed to think? What the hell am I supposed to think?
0: Hey, we were sitting in the car on a rainy day. That light would have looked soft on any woman. You know
1: what? This conversation is starting to take a crazy turn. I've become consumed with jealousy. What she does in the face of all this is to steal Humpty's money to buy a watch for Mickey. What's great about the writing is that we see it all play out. Ginny steals the money. We hear she's getting it engraved. We know it's a mistake already... Then, in the scene when she gives Mickey the watch and he's breaking up with her, Alan delivers the kicker. It's a $500 watch. Ginny was begging for $10 a few scenes ago. $500 in 1950 money is well over $5,000 today. Hell, $500 in today's money for a watch sounds like a lot. It's engraved so she can't return it. Alan allows the audience to work out how bad it all is. No one has to say it. And then she carelessly throws the watch onto the beach anyway. What is that?
2: I got you a present. No. Here.
0: Oh, God. You can't do that. Why not? It's not right.
2: You got me a gift.
0: I know, but... I got you a book. This is it's it's much too expensive. I can't accept this. How would you know it's so expensive? I've inquired about this watch. I was with you. Jenny. Okay. This is a $500 watch. But you always wanted this watch. Yes, but it's much too extravagant. You can't afford this. That's my business. Even if you could, it's much too extravagant given. Given what? Given given what?
1: It's too much to spend on me. You, You shouldn't be getting me jewelry. This is Jenny's problem. Her loneliness, her expectations and her passion. And as much as Mickey is being awful, all we do is think that Ginny has gone too far and ruined it. We also find out that this has happened to her in the past. She cheated on her first husband who left her and Humpty's friends seem to believe that Ginny has tricked Humpty into marriage, pretending to be something she is not. Kind of like the emotional trap of buying someone a $500 watch.
0: Your wife don't like to go fishing anymore, Humpty.
1: Yeah. She never really liked it. She made like she liked it. To get me on the hook, (laughs) I was the fish. (laughs) The breakup with Mickey leads to one of the best scenes in the film, a two and a half minute uncut bit of chaos as Ginny returns home to face Humpty as Carolina returns home before leaving on a date with Mickey. When Mickey's name is mentioned by Carolina, it is another stab at Ginny and another big moment for us watching on. There's an added bit of detail that Carolina will treat Mickey to dinner because it's his birthday. Ginny just had a fight about money, and Carolina's about to buy her lover some dinner. I knew you had a bottle. I knew Hi! it.
2: I'm late. I'm such a scatterbrain. I have a date and I forgot my wallet. Uh, I'm meeting Mickey and I found this great pizza place. It's his birthday, so I'm treating. you are you going with Mickey? Don't look so stunned. You introduced me to him, remember? If he breaks my heart, you're to blame. I know you warned me, but I think he likes me and is sincere. Not that anything's happened yet, but I'm hoping tonight's the night.
1: The biggest scream at the screen moment is, of course, Ginny's telephone call. Alan has been building up to this moment. I would say that without this moment, Alan wouldn't even have a film. It's 80 minutes into this 100-minute film when we finally learn what this is all about. With the weight of everything on Ginny, She makes a terrible choice. She sees the gangsters on the boardwalk and she knows where they're going. Alan writes it so Ginny is given every opportunity. She makes the call and gets through. All she has to do is say a few words. But she doesn't. And when she doesn't, we all know what will happen. It's exactly what does happen. Carolina is later killed. What?
2: Capri, John's speaking. Uh, Capri? Yeah, I, I, I need to speak with uh, a customer. She, she, she has a, she has blonde blonde. Hello? <laughs> hello? Capri,
0: hello?
1: There are so many things to say about this moment. Over the course of the film, Alan stacks up the reasons why Ginny might have done what she does She's stressed and under pressure. She's unloved and lonely, but none of these reasons stack up. In a way, this film has all been a story about what can drive someone to kill, or at least let a life die in cold blood. I also love that Alan makes this hideous act something that is so simple and careless. Just a few words. She didn't have to lift a finger. She had the phone. Maybe if the action was harder, we might have been more forgiving. But the fact that it was so simple to save Carolina's life makes the act even crueler in the end ginny is ginny the woman who makes decisions based on her irrational heart and doesn't think of the consequences she could have told carolina to run and she would have been out of her life anyway but it's not like mickey would have taken her back or any other part of her life would have gotten better we know the reasons why ginny makes her choice it's the same reason she buys a 500 hundred dollar watch it's a selfish act of passion yes.
2: It's a little opportunistic, wouldn't you say? I mean, it kind of reads that way. <laughs> but when it comes to love, we often turn out to be
1: our own worst enemy. The film wraps up after that, but it's a comedown after the build up to that masterful climatic scene. I actually find it a little disappointing the way Alan wraps things up so neatly. I don't love how Mickey is so sure that he puts it all together. Maybe he's being the unreliable narrator again, This scene reminds me of the one in Match Point, where a person has done something so awful that they have to face up to someone who knows the truth. But it's Mickey, who's unlikable and not terribly smart. The story kind of demands that Ginny faces some sort of moral judge for her actions, but it's odd that it's Mickey. I put it together. I spoke to Humpty,
0: to Tiny. The phone at Ruby's was out of order. You used the payphone. I spoke to John from Capri. A woman called and then hung up. I got it. It doesn't take Sherlock Holmes or
1: or Eugene O'Neill to plot this one out. A lifeguard can do it. It does give Alan and Winslet another chance to show off in a long scene. And Winslet does many pages of dialogue tying everything together. Again, maybe a little too neatly, but really, the scenes don't hit because we've already been knocked out. None of this matters.
2: Oh, please, you're delusional. No. What do you think that I could? No. Yeah, I will. I am not going to stand here and have my character sullied by wild I'm and fantastical insinuations. Oh, you like, had time to I, I warn her! I lacked sufficient stature that I was you just hung up the phone. A mediocre person to rise to a tragic action. Honey, I don't know what fanciful scenario you're writing in your own mind, but I suggest I you get a grip her. on your imagination. You hung up the phone.
1: It's interesting how Alan chooses to end the film. The final shot of the film is not Mickey or Ginny, it's Richie setting another fire. The Richie storyline feels like it was just another tension point, but one that could have just easily been removed from the story. In a way, it is never paid off. You feel like Richie was gonna cause a big accident or actually kill someone. Instead, nothing changes for him either. It's probably a metaphoric image, things keep burning. It's an interesting choice to end with it and not the shot of the Wonder Wheel, which was used just moments earlier. What the hell
0: does the kid see when he just stares into the flames? Is it the eternal power of the universe? The conversion of mass into energy? The furies at work, whatever his motive, it is not appreciated.
1: In the few interviews Alan did for the film, he talked a bit about the idea of passion. It is a nod again to things like A Streetcar Named Desire, but also a thousand other plays and stories. But what interested Alan was that it was an often repeated trope. The stories of passion have existed since stories began. And no matter what happens in the world, what new technology or lifestyle comes along... In thousands of years of storytelling, it all comes back to our desires and passion. It's the reason Alan finally settled on the title of Wonder Wheel, the decision he made well after production ended. The Wonder Wheel, the actual ride, doesn't really play a part in the story and is used in only one scene framing Carolina's arrival. I assume Alan added those extra shots towards the end of the film to bring the point home. The real Wonder Wheel is a Ferris wheel that has been running for over 100 years. The family who own and run the Wonder Wheel gave some quotes about being thrilled to be the name of a new Woody Allen film. But that was before they saw the film. I wonder what they think of it now, that the family business is the symbol of this never-ending cycle of unresolved desire. You
2: always think a person's tragedy is a own
1: fault?
0: No. fate plays a big role. More stuff in life is out of our control than we'd like to admit.
1: This film really could have been a play With only a few key settings, all mainly Ginny and Humpty's home and a few scenes on the beach. I wouldn't be surprised if Wonder Wheel was originally written as a play that Alan repurposed. The long monologues seem to back that up. That small self-contained feel serves to magnify what we do see, and mostly it's Ginny. Most of the other characters are cartoons who do one thing and never change over the course of the film. Carolina and Humpty don't grow. Mickey in many ways doesn't grow either, And the gangsters may as well be the shark from Jaws, a threat that is always approaching. So the film is all about Ginny in the end. Is she a bad person? Is there any understanding we can give her in her unforgivable act? Do we leave the film thinking, poor Ginny, she had no luck and she did a terrible thing? Or do we feel like she deserves the mundane hell that she has trapped herself in? For me, it's really hard to say, but probably more the latter. I don't know if Alan is trying to make me feel more empathy for Ginny, but I seem to stop short.
0: Carolina was a lovely daydream, but reality, with all its pros and cons, belonged to Ginny. All my silly schemes to pursue Carolina seemed crazy, and I made the decision to never entertain that pipe dream again. But, as Jake said, the heart has its own hieroglyphics.
1: Maybe he was right. In a way, there's two films being made with Wonder Wheel. There was two very distinct shooting situations. The first film is the one that is shot on location, including recreating the 1950s using present-day Coney Island. Alan used real locations of Coney Island mostly, as well as the real surrounding streets. But what is added is a lot of special effects. Alan flirted with special effects in recent years. He says he was never specifically against it, but special effects took years, years he usually didn't have on his schedule. There's a couple of really obvious digital shots of planes used as establishing shots in To With Love and Blue Jasmine. But his last film, 2016's Café Society, had been his most effects heavy to date. And by now it was cheaper than paying for the stores in the background to close for a day and redressing them in the style of a different decade. The company that did the special effects for Café Society, Brainstorm Digital, returned for Wonder Wheel and really upped their game. I imagine being able to recreate a faithful Coney Island in 1950 on a Woody Allen budget is the reason this film exists at all.
2: We need an extra $10 a week.
1: Don't look at me you see our businesses. Well, don't look at me either. The opening shot of Wonder Wheel is where it's most visible. The beach is real and Justin Timberlake is real. Most of the rest is digital magic. The buildings in the backgrounds were recreations of buildings that are long gone. Even the signage was from the time. It's not 100% accurate, it's more like a best of. Alan put some of the more memorable buildings and billboards all together. A lot of research was done to get the signage right with the help of local history groups. Those groups also helped to figure out the right costumes for the era. Even the rides and amusements were digital. At the time, the parachute jump and the others were out of service. All of it was recreated. It's amazing how much Alan leans into it. The film starts with a few shots that really show us the world of the film. There's Carolina's big entrance and she walks down the boardwalk. And many of the rides behind her were put in later, digitally. Alan is actually showing off this newly created digital hybrid world. Simple dialogue scenes feature amusements in the background, helping to reinforce the setting and to rack up the effects bill. And then there's the crowd. There wasn't really that many people on the beach. It's an old effects trick that a small number of extras were redressed and then placed in all different locations on the beach. They were stitched together into a crowd, digitally. And then there's the surrounding streets. It's interesting that Alan and his team were able to find enough locations nearby that looked close enough that with a bit of set dressing and digital effects, passed off as 1950s. Ginny and Mickey have a drink at the Freak Bar, just a little bit away from the beach that is the Coney Island area. There's a quick passing scene of a hot dog stand, Nathan's famous hot dogs, which still looks wonderfully retro.
2: If you don't like Coney Island, why don't you move? From your mouth to God's ears.
1: Money, honey. Ginny and Mickey go on dates at Staten Island's Chinese Scholars Garden. It's a gorgeous little oasis that is part of the largest Staten Island botanical gardens. It was built like a traditional Chinese garden, with traditional materials shipped to the States. No modern or Western construction ideas, like nails, were used to build the garden. The location works for a film set in the 1950s because these gardens have existed for centuries. However, this particular garden was only built in 1999. Chinese gardens in the US only really became a thing in the 1980s. So this is a huge anachronism. These beautiful gardens. How do you find these places? But the second filming situation was the part of the shooting that was done in the studio. Alan used Silver Cup Studios in Queens, a studio that he last used in the Purple Rose of Cairo. Ginny and Hupti's home was a set. The amusement park we see outside the window was green screen and more digital effects. The studio shooting is where many of the film's long scenes take place. It is there that Alan and his team had the control to execute these long scenes. The mix of soundstage and digital worked so well that I was convinced that the scenes under the boardwalk were also a studio. The sky seemed too perfect, the lighting was too dramatic, and they kept returning to the location. It all pointed to a controlled studio location, but no, that was done on location, washed with intense colours and augmented by digital effects. All these effects actually served to make this one of the most expensive Alan films ever. It far exceeded Alan's usual budget, and it was one of the reasons he gave the film to Amazon after resisting their advances for so long. Amazon were happy to prop up the extra cash. The film is still so recent that Alan hasn't really made anything since that required this much special effects. It remains to be seen if Alan will ever come back to this world, or if this is the period where he tried it and he doesn't come back. There's certainly plenty of independent cinema, made on lesser budgets, that uses a bit of special effects here and there. Alan loves long scenes and has filled his film with many scenes that run for two or three minutes without a cut. This is a huge contrast to the average cut of five seconds in modern Hollywood cinema. That scene in the flat before Carolina goes on a date with Mickey is the most showy. The camera darts from room to room, we follow several different characters. These scenes in one location add to the tension, and makes it feel even more like a play. Some of Alan's dramas, like Another Woman, or Cassandra's Dream, or others, have sometimes been criticised for being slow-moving. This is more apparent because Alan's comedies are usually so fast-moving, and are a hundred words a minute joke-fests. So it's nice that this film is actually really quite pacey. It adds to the visceral quality. It is a little relentless, and at times you actually want a break. You want to rest from something else going wrong. Instead, it's death by a thousand unrelenting cuts. Um, I'm sorry if I upset you.
2: It's a lot to take in.
1: All of this has helped when your cinematographer is Vittorio Storaro. He worked on Cafe Society and returned for this, his second film with Alan. And this time he was more willing to ask for what he wanted and Alan was happy to give it to him. Storaro has his distinct style, but he often starts with references. On this film, he looked at American paintings from the period, in particular, 50s painter Norman Rockwell. Rockwell painted these bright slices of American life. They were lovely, but very much on the surface. Storaro wanted to recreate that feel on film, a surface shine that didn't hold up behind closed doors. So the sound and activity of the park was bright, but home and insides are dark and quiet. The other idea from Vittorio was intense colour, Alan has a colour scheme that he prefers, and usually he pushes his cinematographers a certain way. Storaro pushed back with a stronger idea. He wanted to use colour to reflect character and tell story. Like with a music score where major characters get their own themes, major characters would get their own colours. Ginny is orange and reds. It's a colour that is in her room in several scenes. The light comes in as bright red. Carolina, in contrast, is blue. The scenes where she is in a class seem to belong in a completely different film because they are so overtly blue. When we see her on a date with Mickey, Mickey is lit so blue he's almost a smurf. The lighting culminates in a scene in Ginny's bedroom where Carolina confesses to Ginny that she has feelings for Mickey. The room starts hot and red, Ginny's colour. But when Carolina walks in, there are streaks of blue. And by the end of the scene, the whole room is blue. Carolina has won.
2: Calm down, Ginny, they're leaving. I know him, and I know him well enough to know you're not his type. And he, honey, he's taken. He's not free. Okay, that's why I asked you.
1: But it's not just the color, there's also the lack of color. There's scenes indoors, especially in Ginny's home where there is intense shadows everywhere. Especially in a few scenes in Ginny's bedroom, the effect is almost all silhouette. Everything just looks incredible and way more interesting than it needs to be. Kate Winslet had wanted to work with Woody Allen for many years. Her mother was a big Woody Allen fan and they watched the films together. Winslet was cast and all set to star in Match Point over a decade earlier, but pulled out with weeks to spare, citing exhaustion. She was replaced by Scarlett Johansson, so it all worked out, but Allen promised to work with Winslet again. Alan for his part always professed to be a big fan of Winslet. I can't imagine she didn't cross his mind when thinking of roles like Jasmine in Blue Jasmine or Sally in You Will Meet a Tall Dark Stranger. Winslet gets the role of a lifetime here. She gets to play this hugely complicated and conflicted character who gets all the great lines and all the big emotions. She raved about being given such a rewarding role. It was someone I loved.
2: A drummer. Whose rhythm pulsated with life, and we married and had a child, and he adored me, and yet, uh, yet I c- couldn't resist the beautiful young man in the cast who played Marchbanks. God, wasn't even the leading man, but he, but he kissed me on stage every night, and I started looking forward to those kisses, and and uh, I wound up in his bed, and. And then my, my husband found out, and, and it crushed him.
1: Justin Timberlake takes the leading male role. Timberlake has been good in many things, but he fails to really disappear into the role here. He doesn't quite look like a handsome but selfish schlub. He's almost too handsome. It might have been more interesting if Mickey was, you know, not a heartthrob known to millions. Summers, I work here
0: on base 7 comes the fall I'm a student at New York University going for my masters in European drama I'm Mickey Rubin poetic by nature I harbour dreams of being a writer a writer of truly great plays so I can one day surprise everyone and turn out a profound
1: masterpiece Jim Belushi is the big revelation here he is known for his TV and film roles mostly in comedy he brings his a-game and totally gets that everything in the film is on a boil He starts at a high temperature and just throws his weight around. He looks and feels like he's been Humpty for decades. He delivers pages of dialogue and does it pretty well. He's had a little bit of Broadway experience, but here he does a really admirable job doing this play on a film.
2: You want to go fishing Friday night? The boys are bringing their wives. I'll go fishing, Humpty. How many times do
1: you have to go over this? You
2: You don't like fishing, you don't like boating, you don't like bowling. What the hell do you like?
1: Juno Temple rounds out the main cast. She's lovely, vulnerable and sweet. She doesn't get to do much but brings a lovely light energy to the film. She is totally underused here, but she seems to be having fun in a film that is no fun. I knew what was going on,
2: but you look the other way. When your husband's hot stuff and six million women are after him, but he wants you. And it's all jewellery and furs and Florida and the racetrack and the Copa. the roulette wheel in Cuba.
0: Wow, you've really lived a life.
1: It was great. Until it wasn't. And then it was a lot of arguing and getting pushed around. Jack Gore, who plays Ginny's son Richie, also does a fine job. He would go on to star in his own TV series called The Kids Are Alright. He's alright here too, playing a simple role. I mean, the guy has to act against Kate Winslet and he actually keeps up. David Krumholtz has an odd cameo as Mickey's friend. He has a little dialogue with Mickey and otherwise barely makes an impact in the film and is not seen again. I imagine more of his role got cut and this is what could be salvaged. It's not the first time that Krumholtz has been cut from an Allen role. He was cast in the lead for Midnight in Paris, but the financial backers couldn't get the funding together and Alan made another film instead. When he returned to Midnight in Paris, he rewrote the role to be Californian, and cast Owen Wilson. Also odd is that at one point Ginny has a friend. They eat ice cream together, played by Geneva Carr. She doesn't even get a name and is referred to as Ginny's friend in the credits. She comes out of nowhere and I suspect some earlier scene got cut.
2: As the summer ends and it, it fizzles out and I'm left at square one, I don't know what I'll do. You'll survive like we all do.
1: No, no,
2: I'm not a strong person. I wouldn't have survived my breakdown if it wasn't for Humpty. Now I'm feeling claustrophobic.
1: The headaches are back. You just have to be realistic in case things don't go your way. This was Patricia DeSerto's first film leading the casting for Alan. Alan's work with her predecessor, Juliet Taylor, was legendary. She had led the casting for every Woody Allen film for over 40 years, starting with 1975's Love and Death. Patricia DeSerto had worked under Taylor for a decade, starting with 2006's Scoop. So she knew all about Alan's preferences and peculiarities. She makes some pretty great calls here. Notably when the cast was announced, there was just one gangster in Tony Sirico. Sirico is an old friend of Alan's and had worked with him many times both before and after The Sopranos. But at some point it was decided that there needs to be two killers and not one, probably to drive some dialogue. So DeSerto brings in Steven Sharipa, Sirico's Sopranos co-star. It's lovely because it's a familiarity for the audience, and obviously he and Sirico just can go straight to work. Sharipo doesn't do many acting roles, so it's nice to see the pair back together. Sirico passed away in 2022. It was the last time he'd worked with Alan, and it was one of his last roles in a major film. Hey, you Humpty? Yeah. Frank Adado says hello. He's very upset
0: because his wife's gone missing, and we're trying to find her. Since uh, she's your daughter, we thought we'd check with you. Well, I haven't seen Carolina
2: in years. We're not on good terms. Frank must have told you that. I haven't spoken to her in five years.
0: I don't know. I lost track of her after she ran off and got married.
1: Uh Uh-huh, really? Yeah. Do me a favor. I'm talking to you. Stop working, all right? The opening credits song is Coney Island Washboard by the Mills Brothers. The Mills Brothers were at their biggest in the 1930s as a pop group, and Coney Island Washboard was first released in 1932. It's not one of their biggest songs, and I imagine Alan did the same thing of just choosing a song by its name. Although this one works better than when Alan just chooses some random instrumental. And of course the song was a product of the 30s when Coney Island was probably at its peak. This cheery sort of jingle for Coney Island in its heyday clashes with the 50s run-down shadow that we see in the film. Another song fits better with the era. It's You Belong to Me by Joe Stafford, a popular ballad first released in 1952. It's a sweet little song of simple longing. Used here, it feels like that simple longing is more sinister. Alan used the song in the film's trailer and it feels more appropriate as a the theme to this film. Just remember darling
0: all the while You belong
1: to me Another song from the 50s is heard Harbour Lights by the Sammy K Orchestra and both You Belong to Me and Harbour Lights hit number one in the Billboard charts. In a way it's Alan using pop hits. There's music and noise in the background from the amusements, but on the whole, that's most of the music, and no soundtrack for the film was released.
0: You belong to me.
1: I'll be so alone. Wonder Wheel was released on the 1st of December, 2017 in the US, following a premiere at the New York Film Festival a couple of months earlier. Amazon was in love with Woody Allen at this point. They had signed him up for a TV series that had just released in 2016 called Crisis in Six Scenes. They had outbid everyone else to secure the rights for his last film, Cafe Society. And that relationship continued with Wonder Wheel. But look, there's no other way around it. The film's release got wrecking-balled by the renewed allegations against Harvey Weinstein, and then the huge blowback across the industry, and it engulfed Alan as well. All of it was obviously bullshit, but everyone was running scared and looking for their pitchforks. Winslet did the awards circuit, this strange series of talks and interviews that are focused on the industry because the industry is who votes for these awards. But in the end, she wasn't nominated. The film sort of got dumped out there with very little promotion. It's a real shame. This film deserved better. Alan around this time said a lot about changing the way he works and he wanted to only make films in New York again and he wanted to focus on drama more than anything. This was the end of a really solid run of Woody Allen dramas. If you take away the light, magic in the moonlight it's a run that consists of Blue Jasmine, Irrational Man, Café Society and Wonder Wheel. Whatever the faults of those individual films, it's a very interesting run of drama. All American, all very character driven most dealing with big, chewy philosophical questions as well as life and death. Alan has harped on about being a dramatic filmmaker since the late 70s. Forty-odd years later, he's finally getting it right and with some consistency. Of that group of later American dramas, Wonder Wheel is the most uncompromising. It is often compared to Blue Jasmine, but it probably has more in common with September or Match Point. The reason to go back to this film is to marvel at the world that Alan and his team have created, or seeing Kate Winslet's performance. It's another reason that this works better as a play. Plays live on when they have great roles, because it's a chance to see which new great actor is going to tackle this role. As this film will always be Kate Winslet's performance, I don't know how much I will revisit this film. In the end I think this film is pretty good, but it's certainly no fun.
2: my goodness, don't you think you're being a
1: little melodramatic? Here's some fun facts, if there is such a thing, for Wonder Wheel. The film features a special thanks to Marty Alma. Marty was a lifeguard at Coney Island in the 50s and shared his memories with the film team, including the specifics of what the lifeguards wore. He rose the ranks to be chief of the lifeguards, which he would have been when Alan went to Coney Island as a kid. In this story, he would have been Mickey's boss. He died just a couple of months before the film came out. The book that sets off Mickey's and Carolina's relationship is called Hamlet and Oedipus. It's a critical analysis of Hamlet through the lens of the eatable complex. It was written by Ernest Jones, who also wrote about Sigmund Freud. It's a very high-minded book for our characters, and it's an interesting choice on Alan's part. The themes of the film aren't really reflected in the book. Perhaps it's just a book that Alan likes. What is it? Hamlet and Oedipus by Ernest Jones. My goodness, that sounds deep. (laughs) And finally, there is a scene where Mickey mentions his love of Bora Bora. It's the second time that Alan has mentioned the island of Bora Bora in a film. It's also in Everyone Says I Love You. And it's this romantic fantasy place for one of the characters. And once again, for Mickey, it's just the most beautiful place on Earth. Now, it sounds exotic and has a rich history, but it's hard for me to think of Woody Allen on an island resort with all that sand and nature.
0: You wanna know the best place I ever saw? Where's that? Bora Bora.
1: I heard of it. It's over by Tahiti. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Woody Allen Pages podcast. What do you think of Wonder Wheel? It just never even really got discussed. So I don't actually know how many people feel about this one. So I would really love to hear your thoughts. Email me, Woody Allen pages at gmail.com, and the best comments and questions will be in the Q&A episode. And I do read the comments on the website and social media and stuff as well, but email me, go on, that's the best way. So that's it for this short season. It just flew by. There's a break for now as I finish off the last of the season and we'll be back in, say, December. If you haven't already heard, Woody Allen has a new film that will premiere at the Venice Film Festival this week. It's called Coup de Chance. We'll cover that release and then we'll get back to the podcast. And it's funny to think, we're only halfway through Woody Allen's filmography. So many great films yet to come. As usual, there's ways to support the podcast. The support for this short season has been incredible. Thanks for the emails, especially you regulars who know who you are. There's links in the podcast description for the Patreon, the tipping service Buy Me a Pony, and links to the books and the store. I won't go on too much about it this time. Of course, Leave me that review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Tell a friend and follow me on all the socials at Woody Allen Pages and check out the website at WoodyAllenPages.com. In a few months, we look at the film that people call the sequel to Annie Hall. Thanks for listening. Oh,
2: God, spare me the bad drama.